The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Very good. <laughs> okay, everybody, I was just remembering this one little um, trick, make the, uh, the talk a little bit more useful. I've done this many, many times about uh, perception. And it's amazing, even monks, when I sort of give them this little trick, many of them actually fail it. So all of you who are listening at home, see, what does this say? Read it out. Okay. <laughs> For those of you who've seen me do this before, you probably got it straight away. Many people, they look at this and they see it as we only see what we want to see, not what is true. Makes a lot of sense. And if you actually saw that and read that out, uh, <laughs> it's most common people. What it actually did say was we only see what we want to see not what what is true. The word what was repeated. And this is an idea of how perception works. That we read something, we make sense out of it. So when there's errors there, like two what's, where there should only be one, the brain actually just passes over it and just sees just one word, because that makes more sense. And this is one of the problems with our brain. Out of efficiency, it actually does edit sort of the perception. So what actually we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we feel, even what we know, is edited and bent to fit what we think should be there. And when you see just how pervasive uh, that distortion of perception is, it does explain many of the oddities of this world. And also it, ex it does challenge you. What you perceive, is that real? How real is it? Or is the brain playing tricks on you? And uh, of course, that explains why uh, some people disagree with me. Why can't they be smart and see that I know what's right and everybody doesn't know what's uh, Everyone who disagrees with me is wrong. And these are intelligent people. The re only reason is because that our perception sees things in a different way. The perception is conditioned. And that conditioning can bend perception. So what I see is white, someone else sees as black. And some of you may think that that's going a bit too far, that we have some agreed perception. But being a meditating monk, that there was a time, maybe actually early on in my monastic life, that one of those interesting experiences which happened when my meditation was going very, very well, getting some nice uh, deep meditations. But this was over in Thailand, in the forest monastery 
over there. And I was, as I was after a meditation, meditation, I was walking in the the forest monastery, and I. This is absolutely a true story. I was walking past the uh, the bathing place, the well. In those days, we would bathe outside. We, we had wells, and it was in cold water we bathed. And as I was walking past the bathing area, I saw some monks had put the towels on the line to dry. And as I passed, one of the towels which I saw hanging on the line in the bright sunshine of the mid-afternoon was a black towel. It was jet black like coal. And I stopped because never in my whole life have I seen a black towel. After lockdown, if you go into places like Coles or any other sort of, um, maybe Coles is not the right name for the shop because it's a black. But anyway, if you ask for a black colored towel, you won't get one. All towels are bright colored or white or cream or blue or something. But to get one which is jet black is impossible. Never before have I seen a towel like that, black in color. No, all the through, it was 100% black. And so I stopped. I thought, what's going on? When you see things which you don't expect, when you see things which are strange and weird, of course you stop and investigate it. I was just standing there staring at it for about three or four minutes. It wasn't just a flash. It was there and stayed there. And I wasn't drunk or on drugs. I was perfectly alert, very alert. And oh, there's an echo behind, like two persons talking. So hopefully that's someone can fix that up. I'm the only person in this room. So I'll try to speak more slowly. Maybe that might help. But anyway, when I was uh, seeing that black towel for about you know, five or six minutes, I couldn't work out why there was a black towel there. And then immediately, in just you know, half a second, the towel changed to color. Just the color totally transformed to white. Of course, I went up to it. What's going on? Is this some magic towel? It wasn't magic at all. It was a white towel. It had been a white towel all along. But I realize that especially when you have some strong meditation, your perceptions can really change radically. You can see a towel which was white look like it's perfectly black. And later on, you may read in the suttas what the Buddha said, that sometimes some monks can do that, nuns as well. Just you know, they can see day as night, night as day. And this is not just a strange thing. This is one of the things which can happen when your mind is so strong, you can mess around with perceptions. And that really can actually start to challenge your idea on how this cognitive process, cognitive process of knowing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and knowing actually happens. And it also explains what I started off by saying, 
Why are there so many different religions in this world, different politics in this, different beliefs in this world? And even in Buddhism, so many different types of Buddhism, even in Theravada Buddhism, so many different types of Theravada Buddhism. In forest tradition, so many different types of forest tradition teachings. Who's right and who's wrong? And the point is that all of those teachings are pointing to something. The signs may be pointing in a different direction because they're coming from different places. So if, <laughs> uh, depending on where you're standing, you know, if somebody points the BSV you know, from uh, Sydney, they say BSV is south. If someone points to the Buddhist Society of Victoria from Perth, it's to the west. Sorry, that's wrong. <laughs> I'm confused again. It's to the east. Who's right? And a lot of times, the one's perceptions, the way one looks at things, you have to take account of where you're looking from. But then they should all be pointing, hopefully roughly, the right direction. Now the point is, here, the, sentence, the way that the human being works is that we are conditioned, let's call it a more interesting word, brainwashed, into seeing things in a certain way. Because of our cultures, our religions, our gender, our upbringing, each being sees things in a different way because it's their views which have been established for a long, long time. And sometimes we don't realize just how powerful those conditionings are, that brainwashing is. <laughs> and you can see that happening, how your perceptions are molded. They're not yours. They're molded by our culture. I remember the occasion, and it's an old story I've told many times. When I was a student at Cambridge, and I was uh, saw on a TV a, a very stupid advertisement. It was a very simple advertisement. And really, looking back, I should have been way more intelligent and saw through this straight away. <laughs> but boys are stupid sometimes. So the, <laughs> the advertisement on TV was for a tobacco called St. Bruno Tobacco. Now, these were the days we didn't know that tobacco was bad for your health. Fortunately, I never smoked cigarettes, but I was at Cambridge. I was an intellectual, and I saw so many photographs of people like Albert Einstein just smoking a pipe with tobacco in it, obviously. And I thought that was just cool for somebody who was an academic. And then if I wanted to advance in my, my academic career, smoking a pipe was uh, one of the things you had to have. But also on this advertisement, oh, this young man, just like me, and he was smoking St. Bruno tobacco down the street of an ordinary uh, high street in UK. And he passed a... a uh, I think it was, first of all, a greengrocer's shop selling vegetables and fruit. 
this beautiful girl in the greengrocer's shop, some amazing redhead or something. And she smelt the aroma of St. Bruno tobacco, was totally infatuated and jumped over the counter and followed this man, uh, willing to do his every desire. And then they passed, he passed another shop, a news agent shop, and another beautiful blonde uh, rushed out of the shop once she smelt the, the fragrance of St. Bruno tobacco and followed him. And then he passed another shop and another shop and another shop. And in only one minute, he was followed by this, almost you might call it a harem of beautiful young women. And the advert said, St. Bruno tobacco. Just, it's irresistible to young women. <laughs> and that was so stupid, an advertisement. <laughs> but I bought some. <laughs> stupid Peter Betts at that time. I bought some and I tried it out. <laughs> and I, put some, I got myself a pipe, put it in the pipe, lit it, and walked down the street. The only thing which followed me was a dog. <laughs> A little dog. <laughs> and, oh my goodness, I was really caught out there. But then why do you do such things? Afterwards, it was a good experience. I can tell people this. We do some stupid things because I wanted to believe it was true. I wanted to, you know, find some stupid way of being attractive to the opposite gender. <laughs> and what I did was, this, it never worked, but because that advertisement was on the TV, it actually changed my perception. I thought, work. I spent money on it. And you can see just how advertisements work. A lot of times the advertisements we see on TV or on your internet, sometimes they're stupid. They're repeated long, repeatedly again and again. And soon that goes into the brain and change the way you, you see things, change the way you perceive things. It becomes cool. And so you buy stuff. And after a while, you start to see just how perception is altered, how it's changed. Now, it's scary because you can see so much of just how people, corporations, uh, political parties, how religions, how the BSV <laughs> influence you. <laughs> but with someone like the BSV, they're just very benign and very good. They're influencing you in a good way. And I'm influencing you to, to check this out and see how things happen, how your perceptions often cannot be trusted. Especially when you get to deep insights and deep truths. What can you see? What can you trust? And what don't you trust? And the classic story behind this, I mentioned this gentleman to you, I think yesterday. This was one of the friends I grew up with, a uh, fellow student at Cambridge University. Uh, you can check him out if you like on the internet, Professor Bernard, I think it's Jay Carr. B-E-R-N-A-R-D, middle name, Chad. I don't actually what it stands for. But anyway, the surname, 
C-A-R-R, Carr. And he's Emeritus Professor of Theoretical Physics, Creamery College, London University. And he was also a very close associate of uh, Stephen Hawkins. And also he was a president of the uh, president of the what was it the Society for Psychic Research, ghost hunting and weird stuff. He's also a Buddhist. He was, I mentioned the first Buddhist I ever met. And for those of you who don't know the, the story of how I met my first Buddhist, it was, and I became a Buddhist when I was only 16, but I didn't know what to do next. There's no member of my family who were a Buddhist, and I didn't know what to do. So, but fortunately, a couple of years later, when I went up to college, in many colleges, universities, places like that, and they look after their students' social life. And so they did have the society's fair in a big hall. They had all the different clubs and societies, because it was Cambridge, even like the fox hunting society. We used to call it the hare and hounds society. So if I wanted to, I could have joined that and gone fox hunting, <laughs> riding on a horse. <laughs> well, I wouldn't do that. But there was another society. One of the first societies I saw there was the Cambridge University Buddhist Society. Oh, wow, my eyes went wide. I never expected that. There was other Buddhists at the university. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I went up to the counter straight away and said, I want to join. And the young man at the counter said, oh, you don't have to join. Just come and see. You know what Buddhists are like. <laughs> they don't change in all these years. Come and see. I said, no, no, I'm already a Buddhist. I want to join. Here's my one pound. That was the joining fee. He said, no, you don't have to. Just put that money away. You can come and see if you can join then. I said, no, I want to join. Said, you don't have to. <laughs> Believe it or not, in those days, I could get angry. So I'd slam the pound note down on the table. Join me now. And of course he did. And that was Bernard Carr. <laughs> First time I met him. He was the treasurer, the honorary treasurer of the, the University of Buddhist Society then. <laughs> and anyway, he told me this story because this is a combination of science and psychic research. And it will actually change a lot of your perceptions of what psychic research really is. How very good scientists, they go and investigate places where other people think that science doesn't belong. And of course it belongs there. So this was the, um, the story, the experiment, which was done in Imperial College in London. Imperial College is you know, a very fine uh, university of science in the centre of London, just you know, basically next to the Albert Hall in uh, South Kensington. But anyway, that one of Brian, Professor Brian Carr's associates said he discovered the reality of levitation, how you can levitate stuff. And this was not some crazy nutcase. This was like a, a, a professor himself who had done much, much good research in, in physics. So he had a reputation uh, 
Okay, somebody else is still seeing that, uh, hearing that echo and background talk. So hopefully other people can mute themselves. And so just let me talk for a while. There's no one else in my room. Maybe a ghost. Ooh. No, no ghosts in my room. Everyone's echoed, um, Arjun. It might be a problem on their side. Okay. Everyone's muted. Okay, thank you. Okay, that's interesting. YouTube and Zoom at the same time. Anyway, thank you for those advice. Okay. Anyway, it will always, um, this thing is always recorded, so you can always hear it later on if you need to. But anyway, going back to, uh, what was I going back to? Oh, yeah, the flower pot experiment. This was, uh, he said he's going to levitate something, and he had enough um, respect in the community that many people came, many professors, many sort of senior lecturers, many top physicists came into Imperial College and sat in the lecture theatre to listen and hear and see this professor levitate something. And they had huge amounts of equipment in that lab, especially videos, infrared, ultraviolet, I don't know what they had in there, to actually record the success of the levitation, if it actually worked. And the man himself came into the lecture theater holding a flower pot and put the flower pot on the bench. And then, this is the funny part, you may have heard this before, but if you hear stories you've heard before, please realize that I've heard them more times than you have, <laughs> every time I tell them. It's a, it's a brilliant story, a brilliant anecdote, saying how perception works. He put the flower pot on the table. He showed that there was no wires or anything attached. And then, Eventually, he said, now we will levitate this flower pot. And these were in front of physicists. And then he said, but I need you to assist me. I want everybody sitting, listening to this lecture, to create like an atmosphere, a spiritual atmosphere, by chanting the Hindu holy word, Om. And he managed to convince all these crusty old professors to start chanting, Om, 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 Om. And as they were chanting this spiritual word, the flower pot lifted above the table. It rose a few inches above the table. It was photographed, it was videoed, everybody was in front of it while it was lifting. And then afterwards, having performed this amazing feat of levitation, he asked the audience for their comments. And this was the interesting bit, because quite a few professors sitting, looking, observing, 
trained observational physicists said the, the flower pot never levitated at all. That flower pot remained on the table throughout. Nothing happened. And they were shown the photographs and the videos, and they said, oh, that's just faked. That was just not real. And the point was that it did actually levitate, but because of this huge electric magnet placed under the table beforehand. And whenever you turn on such a powerful electromagnet, you can hear the, the hum of the current. They needed the ohm being chanted to hide the fat and electric current. The strong one was turned on. Otherwise, people would soon know what the trick was. The point was that it did rise into the air, but not through any supernatural powers. It was all usual, just electromagnetism. But the point was that it did rise into the air, and one or two of those professors were so challenged because they believed you know, it could be levitated impossible, that their perception of the flower pot rising was deleted from their consciousness. They literally did not see it. Their eyes did, but it was deleted by their brain before it to their conscious awareness. And that was the whole point of the experiment to show that even people who've trained their whole life to watch experiments, to take down the data honestly, it wasn't up to them. When things become so challenging, they just cannot see it. It's not they see it and think they're hallucinating. They don't see it in the first place. That process, I mentioned that word very carefully because this is part of the human condition, the process of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or knowing is that, it's the process. When information comes, say, to our eyes, then it goes down our optic nerves, and it goes into our brain. Before we know it, it's changed, selected, bent, prepared for us until we can actually see not what's there, but see what we want to see. And we deny what is too challenging for us. And that has huge implications. I remember telling stories like that. This is real life. One of the meditators who would come to see me many years ago now, that she came to a little class, uh, a small class, which I taught regularly. And when she came after, you can see that you know, she wasn't really that sort of Buddhist. She was, an, actually she was English, but living in Australia. And eventually it was one of her friends said, you have to speak to this woman, which I did. And she uh, told me just with lots of tears and emotions the reason she'd come to the meditation class was that the school in which her two twin 
boy and a girl. She had two twins, that was all. And the two twins had not told the teachers, but the teachers had found out that they were being sexually abused by her husband. And of course, that was intolerable pain for her. This was a man she loved. These were the children she you know, cared for, like a mother loves her children like no one else. And for some reason or whatever, you know, she didn't see the signs. The teachers at school did. And there was a whole family was wrecked. He went to jail. And But anyway, that's a long story. But going to the heart of it, she was so guilty. How can I didn't see this? And this is what I told her, to see that your husband was sexually abusing your children. The man that you loved was abusing the children that you loved. The reality of that was just so incomprehensible, just so painful, so devastating. It's no wonder that was blotted out from your conscious awareness. Your brain could not accept that perception, even though it was true. For many, many weeks, it was blotted out. It's not your fault. This is the way that our brain works. And actually, that helped her enormously. It helped her so much that you know, she soon just came to peace. I think that's the best word. Came to peace with what had happened. She could never love that man anymore. He's going to go to jail anyway. And she eventually just went back to her, her to a little place where her family came from with her two, two children. And they grew up and became fine, a young man and young woman. But what was really interesting was just how, because she could understand the process and the guilt there, because she understood how that perception was blocked, it did mean that she came to that state of peace really quite quickly. And because a victim of uh, sexual abuse of two children, she had to legally, she had to go to counselling. And even though she told her psychologist, she said, no, she was at peace with it. She didn't understand what was going on. She was not in denial anymore. It had happened. Why? But then she said, our psychologist kept on saying, no, that's not good enough. You know, you're not getting angry enough. You know, you're in denial. And she came to me and said, I'm not in denial. Honestly, just, well, I knew that because I've been talking to her and counseling her for a long time. I'm not in denial. And, you know, I've come to terms with it. I'm a Buddhist. I'm at peace with it. And so are my two kids. And I knew them and them as well. And so in the end, I had to write this letter to the psychologist and just you know, saying to the psychologist that this lady is, she's um, acknowledged exactly what has happened. She's come to a state of acceptance very quickly, and so has her kids. Now, please don't give her any more um, pain and suffering by forcing her to, conf to admit and anger, which she just doesn't have. Well, I kept in contact with her for many years, and she never did have that anger. She'd come to a, a reconciliation very quickly, which surprised 
the psychologist to the point that even the psychologist was in denial that that was possible and wanted her to come back. But the letter for me was strong enough. So she let the woman be. And you can see just how these aren't just philosophical uh, or (laughs) psychological truths. This is real life and it happens to people. And if we can understand how our perceptions arise and how they can be bent and how it's sometimes not our fault, then we can actually come to a lot of um, uh, peace with what happens to us in our life. Because just as in that flower pot experiment, if something we see is just, it can't happen, it's impossible, it wouldn't happen, then because of that, you block it out. Now, I always like to be a bit weird, but if the aliens, if an alien from Mars landed in Melbourne, you know, with tentacles and and, antennae and everything, I don't know, if a real E.T., landed in Melbourne. People will think it's a joke. They think it's some sort of um, uh, government ploy to raise taxes against aliens. Well, I don't know what, but they would never feel that it's real. It's just too difficult and too hard. And that's one of the problems, just with our conscious perception. And that's also the case that one of the other areas where I talk about this perception, that in a real-life situation, young men, young women, or middle-aged men and women, going out together and trying to have a relationship together. And, you know, when you're sort of, you know, young man, young woman, you try and find somebody, who do you look for? Or what do you look for? You know, in a relationship with somebody else. We have our perceptions. And so often in that young man or young woman we're going out with, we don't see what's really there. Instead, young women are very good at just doing their hair or doing some scent or something. So it takes away your attention (laughs) to the person you're going out with, (laughs) to just some part of her. And that's why when you see through this, what you're going out with is a, is a human being. It's like you. Yeah, you may think they're special, but they're just a nice human being, that's all. And they have some characteristics we, we, we just we don't really recognize. And that's where we get this wonderful story from my teacher, Ajahn Shah. And he was a character. What he said was very funny. But it also had a deep meaning behind it. That's why I remember these stories. And this was the time that I I was in this car with him, in the back seat with uh, two other monks. Ajahn Chah was in the passenger seat, and the driver was driving to the the railway station. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) Driving to the railway station. And suddenly, without warning, Ajahn Chah turned around and he spoke to this, uh, it's actually a novice monk. His name was Gary. He was from, from uh, Los Angeles, uh, as it was. And he only just ordained as a novice. And he looked at him, and through the interpreter, he said, 
to Gary. You are thinking about your old girlfriend back in LA. Had his face wet white. His jaw dropped. Ajahn Chah had busted him. That's why it was not a good idea to think such thoughts when you were close by to an Ajahn Chah. <laughs> and then Ajahn Chah was also very kind. He said, well, we, we can help you there. Because you know, it's the real life, you know, young men becoming monks and you still have your past. And you know, he had an old girlfriend, which he was still sort of quite fond of. And so Ajahn Chah said, well, if you really like her that much, send her a letter and ask her to send something personal of hers to you. And I was intrigued because I didn't realize that was possible for a monk to have maybe a lock of your old girlfriend's hair or a piece of you know, her cloth of a little piece of her dress or something with her scent on it. Is that allowable? And that time I said, oh, yes, 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 no trouble, no trouble. You can do that. And I thought, this is weird. And then when Ajahn Shah spoke the next part of his instructions, the interpreter was just laughing so much. You know, it just took a long time to get the, the uh, translation from him. Because what Ajahn Shah said was... <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, yes, you can get something of hers, something personal, but ask her to send you a little bottle, maybe about that big, like a scent bottle, but full of her feces, full of her shit. And then whenever you miss her, <laughs> open up the lid. <laughs> oh, that's my girlfriend back in L.A. <laughs> And that's not sort of sexist because now we have nuns. And if there are any nuns listening to this, or anybody wanted to become a nun, and you still have a boyfriend somewhere or an ex-husband or something, and you miss him, just ask for a bottle of his shit as well. And then when you miss him, oh, that's my husband, that's my boyfriend back here. There's a lot of truth in that little anecdote. Why is it when you remember someone you're very fond of, what do you remember of them? It's only a partial perception of them. Sometimes we say to, I remember, you know, having girlfriends when I was young, oh, I love everything about you, my darling. Really? <laughs> of course you don't love everything about them. <laughs> There's some things you don't love at all about them. But that's the honesty of it. But little by little, we see that perception, how it works, and how it's bent, transformed. It's by distorted by what we want to see, hear, feel, sort of uh, taste, no. I'm sorry if you feel or no. It's distorted by what we want. And it's blocked by what we don't want. What we don't want is not just what upsets us. It's what even challenges our reality. This cannot be true. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, personally, you know, I could never accept sort of the existence of a, of a kind, powerful God. 
Well, I was actually quite uh, interested when it was uh, one of the great, I think it was Thomas Aquinas, was it? No, uh, uh, one of the other great uh, Christian theologians. We had this very simple argument. He said that God cannot be, St. Augustine, I think it was, God cannot be all-powerful and compassionate, one or the other, but not both. The simple answer, simple argument was, if God is all compassionate, then why does help with things like lockdown, with COVID, with uh, violence in Myanmar, with problems you know, throughout the whole world? Why, why does, doesn't he do anything? Or she, or it, or whatever. And so he can't be compassionate and powerful. If he's all-powerful, can't be compassionate. If he's compassionate, he's not all-powerful. I remember reading that, and I thought, well, it was a simple argument, but sort of how incontrovertible. But still, people think, you know, the Christians and Muslims and stuff, they think that God is all-powerful and all-compassionate. All, uh, and it's amazing just why people even believe that. It makes no sense to me. It's because that my conditioning is different. So my perceptions will be different. And if your perceptions are different, then actually your thoughts become different. Because here we have what the Buddha said was that the cognitive process, a simplified cognitive process, you can start from your perceptions. A lot of those, you know, we sort of get from our parents when we're growing up from our teachers, we're told what to believe. This is hot, this is cold. That this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. This is right behavior, this is wrong behavior. There's a lot of commonality there between things like virtue and morality. Some of the, we have total difference sometimes. But nevertheless, we learn most of that in our early years, growing up with our our parents in our cultures. But then later on, that blocks us from seeing alternatives. We think we can't, this can't be true. Sometimes it is true because it's seeing what challenges us. Sometimes there's, even in science, there's scientists should be re rebellious. In other words, we're trying to push the boundaries of our knowledge, of our understanding of just you know, the the uh, stuff, rupa loka, the world. And every now and again, we come across something which you know, challenges us. And <laughs> I remember just uh, uh, one of the scientists, which I was really impressed with, was Rupert Sheldrake, S-H-E-L. D-R-A-K-E. He was from Cambridge, but he was very rebellious. And he was the one, one of his great works was what he called morphic resonance. He was just trying to follow facts. This actually happens, but you know, no one really interested in explaining it. But one of his books, which he wrote recently, The Dogmatism of Science, I think it's called, or something like that, 
but he was invited to a TED talk on some of the things which he had discovered in his life, challenged scientists to the core. And after it was put on TED talk, it was uh, banned from TED talk. And he, he said, see that even science is dogmatism. You can't even give people a hearing. And so uh, they eventually put him back on again. But one of the things he said really struck a chord with me as a Buddhist monk scientist. And that was, um, this is going a bit off from Buddhism, but it's going to the, an example of what actually works and what doesn't work. And this was, those of you who remember your physics school may remember the, the, just the ordinary law of gravity. Massive objects attract one another and the attraction of massive objects is measured by the, uh, the, the multiplication of their individual masses divided by the square of their distance apart times this universal gravitational constant, which is called big G. And G is supposed to be a constant, one of the, the standard constants of our universe. And there are many laboratories who every year just do a standard measurement of G just to make sure it's always get it right. But what he was finding was that actually the value of big G changes, changes significantly beyond sort of experimental error. And if it changes in Sydney, it changes in London, it changes in uh, New York, it changes in Buenos Aires or wherever uh, they do the experiments there, it changes the same in different places. But that's not acknowledged. It's just too difficult to actually to accept that one of the fundamental concept, uh, concepts on which a lot of you know, far-out science is, is built is not stable. It is not a constant. But unfortunately, it's such a difficult thing to accept that many people just put it in the back burner, say it can't exist. There's some error there, but this is done every year. It does change. Why? So this is where even scientists are in denial. It's just too difficult to accept these things. So it's called an anomaly. And this is one of my other sort of wonderful little pieces of information of um, Professor John Lorber, L-O-R-B-E-R. It's a long time ago, this was in the 1980s, in Sheffield University in UK. He was doing some research on a really weird subject, no one would have thought it was interesting at all, on the shape of the human skull. Now, many of you in your, your work, in your life, you've seen people whose skull shape is either elongated or rounder than usual, and it was not really the usual shape of a skull. And so that he wanted to find out when you have a, you know, an abnormal shaped skull, whether that has any effect on your intelligence, your 
uh, intellectual abilities, in your social abilities, in your health, and that's true, because that's where your brain is located in there. So, you know, if it's the wrong shape, the strange shaped skull, is that going to affect your brain, which is going to affect your intelligence, which is going to affect your life? So that was his research, Professor John Robert. And in the, in the grounds, the campus of Sheffield University in 1981, I think it was, a long time ago now. But anyway, he saw one student whose uh, skull was elongated, not unusually so. So he invited him into the program, which was very simple. They give him a CT scan, you know, of his brain and his uh, skull surrounding it and give him a few tests. And now he was a graduate student in mathematics. He was doing a, I don't know if an MA or a PhD, but he did his uh, first, uh, first degree in maths. He had a girlfriend, healthy looking man. And he was normal, but as I often say, more normal than usual. In other words, he's really normal. And when they gave him the CT scan, ooh, that's when the problem started. He didn't have a brain. No brain in there. Intracerebral fluid or whatever you call it. And Professor Lorva wrote this beautiful article, The Boy with No Brain. And he said you know, to be you know, a good scientist, he did have 1% cortex. That was all. Nothing else. There's no like a little sheaf of skin just uh, between this intracerebral fluid and the, the skull. Nothing else. And he said, that's impossible. It's in, so they took the CT scan again. And I always remember this doctor, which he was driving me from Sydney Airport to a retreat in Wat Buddha Dhamma many years ago. And having all the time in the world to have a good chat about this. And he said he's seen that, the CT scan. It's real. It wasn't a fake. It wasn't a mistake. It was real. And I said, well, what happened next then? Because this challenges so much neuroscience. He said, well, they just put it literally in the back of a, uh, of a, of a file, in a filing cabinet, forgot about it, calling it an anomaly. It's just unexplainable. It's too, too challenging. But for me, when things are challenging like that, if you just don't accept them, if you don't include them in your idea of reality, you are just uh, distorting your perception of what's really real. And this particular example was very important to me because it distorted the perception. There was a fellow who was basically no brain, but had all the functions of intelligence, all the functions of being able to communicate with other people, had empathy, no brain. Where did that come from? And of course, then you go to Buddhist psychology, the mind, the mind before the brain. When the brain dies at death, the mind is still there. And that is a supporting phenomena which is, uh, I mentioned this a few days ago, just in passing for the BSV talks, 
and that was something called terminal lucidity. And I knew this phenomena before I knew its name. And this is the experience, the phenomena when somebody is dead. They're on their deathbed. They're in coma or they're demented. They haven't been able to recognize anybody for a long time. They haven't been able to speak because they're in a coma. And their family around them, or one family member's around them, or someone's around them when they're dying. And they have this experience of terminal lucidity. They remember you. They open their eyes and speak. You know they've been in coma for such a long time. And then they die. There's one example to make. You realize this is real. I'm not imagining these things. There's one of the students. When I mentioned this in, in Nolamara Temple, it's in Perth. One of the students came up afterwards and said he was a doctor. And he said just a couple of days earlier, he had an experience of ter terminal lucidity in one of his patients. Because <coughs> what had happened, he, he was a doctor and the patient started the dying process. It was, uh, the guy had been in coma for a while, the patient, and the process of dying, it is a process, and a doctor is well-trained to know when that process starts and just know that once it starts it's a certain amount of time, then it's going to be concluded. Death will happen. And so once he was alerted, this patient was in the dying process, he went to the bedside, and uh, he had the instructions beforehand to look at the little address book next to the patient's bed and with the address book of the close family and friends. And one by one, he started calling them up, saying, you better come now. You know, your husband is dying or your son is dying or your father is dying. And he was ringing up this man's daughter, which I think was called Julie. I've mentioned this story many times. So I think I got it right, Julie. And got through to Julie at home and said, Julie, better come to hospital quick. Your father's dying. And at that, the patient opened his eyes, turned around and told the doctor, tell Julie how much I love her. And then he closed his eyes and died. And it was a, it's the doctor's a beautiful experience that somehow or other, even though the brain was not functioning at this time, because it was dead, basically, but the mind took over and just remembered Julie and had enough uh, energy or enough ability to be able to move the mouth, say the words, please tell Julie how much I love her, my daughter. And how on earth can that happen? It's because the mind starts to take over. And those are like little perceptions which they really start to give a lot of truth, a lot of evidence towards things like rebirth, reincarnation. And this is part of Buddhism which you know, I accepted as just so obvious when I was young, you know, even before I was a Buddhist. I thought, well, that makes so much sense to me. And I know it's true. And I know how much a great service that would be to everybody if they could understand that rebirth, reincarnation was true, it's real. So what that would mean is that we wouldn't be so upset 
when somebody dies. Because I can imagine, I only imagine what it must feel like if like a, a mother, you know, loses her son. And the son, sort of some accident or some error of the mother, and the, the son dies. And how devastating that would be to a mother. And how that can be alleviated if they know, well, the son's going to come back again. The rebirth is real. And of course, there's been many stories about that, about, <laughs> about the Thai couple. Their first child died in the womb a couple of days before birth. It was a tragedy. But at the funeral service, which I conducted, I never saw this, but they told me, and it was true. They took a biro pen and put a mark, there's a little mark, a line, I can't really see it, put a line on the heel of their dead son. His name was Charlie. And they was cremated. The woman was a young woman, and so you know, she soon became pregnant again. And then when their next child was born successfully this time, it's got a birthmark on the heel, exactly where they put it. And for them, it's you know, proof that Charlie reborn. And for those of you who are interested, I often say that um, Charlie, a boy, I gave lots and lots and lots and lots of chanting for them, so the next time the, the pregnancy would be successful. The rebirth was Annie, a girl. So maybe she got an upgrade. <laughs> Male to female. <laughs> Oops, I won't go anywhere further there. But anyway, there was, was uh, Annie. And I remember her the first months when she used to run around the temple with the boys. She was a, what they call a tomboy. And it's so obvious why. She was a boy boy. You could see, you see, you saw that before, but anyway, it's not just for a funny story. It's just the fact that it does help take away a lot of the pain if we know that rebirth is a fact. It actually happens. Why, why on earth can't people accept that? Why can't we embrace? The truth, and it's a truth, it's real. Why can't we embrace something which would lessen people's pain? Maybe not all pain, but most pain. To me, it's just that type of perception, why it's blocked. But anyway, it's a the good question, why are these things blocked? And how can we trust our perceptions are real? Are you just believing Ajahn Brahma's Ajahn Brahma's deluded as everybody else? And the answer was something which challenged me for many years as a young monk. How do we know what truth really is? And our perceptions, how do we know that what we see is real? That what we know is truth? And I've already given you the answer, I think, in a previous talk. It's what the Buddha said, and it's never, I think, emphasized enough. It is the five hindrances which bend the truth to suit you. 
those five hindrances are wanting. What you want is actually what you see. Mostly, not all the time, but it does actually influence what you actually see, what you hear, what you smell, taste, what you touch, and what you know. Which is one of the reasons why somebody's got a very strong religious belief or a very strong political belief in something. We try to argue with them, and they will just not accept any evidence against their beliefs. It is because that's not the way to change people's beliefs. They're seeing what they want to see. Or sometimes they block out what they don't like seeing. It's just too challenging, too difficult for them. They have to, those scientists, if they could understand that big G does change, oh, that just takes so much of their, their assumptions on life. It makes life too complicated. And so we, we deny it. It's just, it's not what we want to see when people are getting old. Not me, of course. <laughs> when people are getting old, oh, 69 is not old. It's wonderful being with great monks who I live with, and they say, no, it is old, Ajahn Brahm, you're getting old. Mm. So little by little, we are truthful to our existence, and we don't bend it to suit ourselves. And then you, know, you may have a lump somewhere. Oh my goodness, this is cancer. No, it can't, can't be cancer. Can't be cancer. Why is it that people do not sort of go to the doctor and admit that they've got a tumor somewhere? Doctor can see it, you can't. You're in denial. And that kills you. So these are. Important ways our perceptions are manipulated by our wants and not wants. When it happens that you reduce the power of those hindrances, then also you don't have this terrible weakness of sloth and torpor, this tiredness. There's, you know, many of you have tiredness, and we keep pushing against it. You know, one of the best solutions to tiredness is go to bed and have a sleep. It's one of the things which I do regularly, if I can. I just ask my body, body, what do you need? And I don't deny the answer my body gives me. And it has happened. It doesn't happen every day or every week. But a few times I've sat there and something was wrong. I don't know what. And I ask my body, what do you want? What do you need? And it says, I want to go to sleep. It might be in the middle of the day. I've had a good sleep already. And I just, I trust that so much these days. If I can, I just go and lay down. And I just, and because I trust and I know it, you just fall asleep almost immediately. Hit the pillow and you're out for about half an hour, an hour. When I get up, you feel like a million dollars. Now, even though I can't touch money, but you know, that's you feel great. You feel that somehow or other your body needed to take a rest, and you listened to it, and you did take that rest, and it feels so great afterwards. That's why I trust it. That's why I'm one of the reasons why I get very healthy. So, little by little, you actually understand the body. You're not sloth and torpor, you're not restlessness. 
And also you overcome this doubt business. The doubt because you feel that this is going in the correct direction. You feel your life is becoming more peaceful, more healthy, more joyful. The Dharma is growing. These five hindrances are what distort perception. And how do we overcome those five hindrances? Please excuse me for being boring. It's through meditation. And meditation, which is uh, supported by all the other factors of the Eightfold Path, especially I always mention the second factor of the Eightfold Path because that is just ignored too often. Things like uh, letting go, kindness and gentleness, the three sankapas. And if you meditate peacefully, kindly, gently, as I meditate, when I was in my cave just before this talk began, just meditating, just sitting down there peacefully, kindly, gently. So delightful. I wasn't actually watching my breath, I was just watching the peace, the joy. So these are things when you realize just how meditation works. It's not hard at all. When you do it wrong, it's hard. When you do it properly, it's just so easy. And that means your hindrances just get weaker and weaker and weaker, which means you can trust what you see, what you hear, what you feel, what you know. This is much, much closer to the truth. And even though it shocks you sometimes, sometimes people keep asking about anatta, non-self. Can you really see that? You'll always have some denial because it's a very... You've been told it's shocking. It's not, it's, it's freedom. Freedom. So who's afraid of freedom? I'll tell you who's afraid of freedom. People have been in jail for such a long time. When they've been in jail for so many years, they've somehow got used to the suffering of jail. And they're comfortable there. The idea to leave the, the confines of the jail and be free terrifies them. And that's so similar to human beings being free, freeing their perceptions, see things as they really are. And we have to let go of those five hindrances. And that's one of the nice things I've mentioned so many times when you free yourself of the five hindrances, so much joy and happiness. I always tend to think, personally, tend to think the joy and happiness which comes when the five hindrances disappear gives you the courage to actually to go further, to go further and see things which, first of all, to be at peace, seeing even simple things like white cloths turn to black and then back to white again. What the heck's going on there? To see things, your body disappear. To see amazing sights inside the mind. And to just be so still and so peaceful. All those things, it is the joy which gives you the courage, the strength to endure the weird, strange. Even that, <laughs> I'll finish off with the last little anecdote. 
because I recall just going to this um, Zen monastery in England. It's called Throstle Hole years ago. Kenneth Roshi's place, although it was one of her disciples at the time. And anyway, that doing Zen meditation, I'd never done Zen meditation before, but I was always willing to give anything else a chance and see what happens. And so we were told to meditate with our eyes open and sit still facing a wall. I'd never done that before. But then what happened to me, I'd already done enough meditation to be able to be still and to stop going into the past or the future and stop thinking. My mind wasn't wandering at all. I didn't realize at the time, but the five hindrances were you know, pretty weak at the time. And so I was just watching this white wall. My eyes opened. And then the wall disappeared. It vanished. My eyes were open. There was just no wall there anymore. There was nothing there. And a lot of times people would freak out. <laughs> but for me, I had enough happiness and strength just to allow that perception to be. What was it? You know, your eyes were open, and now there's no wall. And after a while, it was just so obvious. I had enough science background that when things don't move, they vanish. The simile today is on your computer. If you don't press any button, the screensaver comes on and then it just goes blank. And that's basically how your brain works. It needs activity to turn it on. If it's still, perfectly still, it vanishes. And you do that all the time. I realize every time I close my eyes, I'm seeing the back of my eyes. And after a few seconds, it just vanishes. The eyes turn off. And it's an important point that stillness allows things to vanish. So imagine just for the arahat at the end of their life, they're so still, everything vanishes. The mind is still. Therefore the mind vanishes. That's it. The end of this <laughs> Okay, not bad for 14. Okay, so now we can have the interrogation, the questions and answers, if you want. Okay, can everybody see that, um, that Q&A session slide here? So we're going to um, encourage everyone to ask Ajahn a question directly rather than um, typing the chats, typing into the chat session. And for those of you who are watching, we've got about 239 people on YouTube at the moment. And if you do want to ask a question, um, then you'll need to jump on across to the Zoom session to ask Ajahn a question. So first, just uh, if you can just follow these instructions, uh, First, if you need to raise a hand, if you need to ask a question, if you want to ask a question, raise the hand, use the raise hand button on the Zoom panel. It's under participants. I've just got a picture of it here. For Windows, it's very, it's dependent on the type of device. I know for an iPad, it's, it's different, but it's, it's under the participants area. 
And then please wait to be invited to unmute the microphone. So I'll unmute the microphone for you. And then if you could start your video as well, and that allows Ajahn to see you. And lastly, if you could keep your question brief and succinct. Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to stop this. I'm going to see down here. Oh, we've got quite a number of people here. Yeah. And first, I'm going to invite uh, Lena to unmute your mic. Ask. There you go. Hi. Uh, good evening, actually, from Indonesia. My name is Lena. Selamat and... malam. Selamat malam, Acan. So, um, actually, I have uh, watched a video of uh, my, uh, Metta Guided Meditation from Achan Brahm. It was very helpful. And for me, as a beginner, it was very helpful. And I, somehow, I think that, you know, there's similarity between the guided meditation and also deep thinking. Are they actually similar? If, I mean, if we are thinking deeply into one topic, is it a type of meditation as well or is it totally not meditation at all? All right. The idea of thinking is trying to, uh, if it's verbal thinking, in other words, give things names, then it really doesn't get very deep at all. So sometimes uh, what I do, I, I, as an experiment, as a teaching method, I lift up something and I ask you, what is this? He says a biro pen. I said, no, give me more detail. And people keep saying more and more and more and more about what this is until you, you run out of names. And once you run out of names, you can see more things about this. You see more detail and more uses. Like one of the uses, it could be, it's a very good scratching implement. <laughs> but what it does it means that if you want to just expand your understanding of something, just watch it, keep it there until all the names vanish. And then go deeper into it. And you, that's where innovation happens. Beyond names, new ideas. Because names, and I did learn another language like Thai, and Laotian, when I was a young monk, I had to. And it wasn't just learning another language, it was learning other concepts, ideas which they didn't exist in English. And that was fascinating, just how limited my English language was. And when you learn another language, like even Bahasa, Indonesia, there are many other concepts there which suddenly you just cannot translate into English. So we don't have that concept in English. And that just shows you just how, to, how you can take a little example, like what is this I'm holding up? And you can see it so much more deeply after a while. So meditation is not deep thinking, but if you practice meditation, your thinking go really deep to the point where you can see things without knowing their names. And even to the point, I mentioned science already. What was his name? Brian Josephson. Uh, Brian Josephson. I think he was a tiny bit older than me, but it was in Cambridge. He was a Welsh physicist. And he was responsible for just 
developing the idea of quantum tunneling, which was so important to develop what we call supercomputers. Um, I think they got passed now by quantum computers, but supercomputers were running at just close to absolute zero. And he could actually prove that this quantum tunneling happened. And he was arguing with, with a double Nobel laureate, American double Nobel laureate for years. Until Stephen Josephson actually just, he triumphed. What he said was true. And he got a Nobel Prize for that. The only Welsh man to get a Nobel Prize for physics. And he got that through <laughs> meditation. Um, his meditation, he was doing the transcendental meditation. That's what he credits for making his mind still enough, powerful enough to actually to discover that. Well, no, no. So deep thinking, yeah, really deep thinking. How many Nobel Prizes has Indonesia got? <laughs> okay, Lena, be the first lady in Indonesia to get a Nobel Prize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer to be enlightened than to get Nobel Prize. <laughs> we call those noble ones, Arius. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Achan. Yeah, good. Next question. That me. Quite likely. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn, for your talk um, tonight about perception. And I'm going to ask you a question that you don't have a lot of personal experience with, but I still would very much value your input. And um, so I am due to give birth uh, in, within the next couple of weeks, um, which I assume might involve some pain. So I was wondering what your views, perhaps relating back to today's topic of perception and um, these yeah. things we've, you've explored today, if you've got any advice for me. Oh, yes. You know, that, believe it or not, in the monastery, it's Wat Banana Chart in Thailand, a monastery full of monks. One of the most popular books was a book on how to give birth to uh, kids from a community. It was a, basically a hippie community in the United States called The Farm. You know, in those years, a summer of love in 1968, a few of those hippies, and they got some money together and bought a, a plot of land, big plot of land somewhere in the Midwest, forget exactly where. And But one of the things they did do, they wrote this incredible, beautiful book on how to give birth. And it was such a lovely book that we got a copy in Thailand, didn't have many, many books there, and that was one of the books which was well read. And people said it became a classic afterwards. And many other doctors and uh, people who were giving birth would read it. And one of the things which they said in there was they brainwashed the mothers-to-be for weeks before. There's no such thing as labor pain. Take that name away, labor energy. And they gave it a totally different name, labor energy. And, it, and they're pretty sort of down-to-earth people. They said, this is the biggest shit you're ever going to do in your life. You know, just stuff coming out of your body. There's this being, your baby coming out of this body. And they said just one of the first times that all the, not just the, the husband, but also just all your family and friends, whoever's got a good attitude, 
and they don't come and tell you what to do. It's like going to a football match. They're cheering for you. Yay! Go, girl, go. Yeah, what a wonderful energy. Whoosh! And it was like being in a party. <laughs> and imagine what that would do to you. Then, you know, you'd be just, you know, just so uh, part of things rather than being afraid. You'd be just giving all this energy from all of your friends and loved ones rather than having to do this on your own. And it's not painful at all. And apparently what just the, the labor periods was just so short and no problems at all. Uh, people said that you know, it's a classic text, and I'm not quite sure what they've done with it, but a few people, you know, uh, midwives and stuff, they said, oh, yeah, well, they know that, and they practice a lot of it. So get as many people as possible, the whole Buddha Society of Victoria, if you can, in your bedside, <laughs> cheering, yeah, sadhu, 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 oh, that's a really good push. Oh, yeah, wait, let's get another one. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> and so it doesn't become labor pain anymore. It just, when we give her that pain, it's labor pain. <laughs> how, how many times this time I mentioned it to the monks a few days ago? I was walking arms round in Thailand, and we always walk barefoot. And I trod on a nail, the nail went right, right through my foot. It was like you know, a Jesus experience. <laughs> Right through. But anyway, I, I just looked at it and it never hurt. It never hurt at all. It was really weird. It must have hit an acupuncture point or something. I don't know. But, you know, you see the nail going right through your foot. Well, that's interesting. But the monk with me, this other Western monk with me, he saw that and said, oh, that's terrible. And as soon as he said that, it really started hurting then. I said, shut up next time. <laughs> I was doing fine. Stop calling it pain. And then you have a much wonderful time. So two weeks. Okay. It's not pain. It's energy. Whoosh. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Lydia. All right. This one, uh, I invite Samsung Galaxy S7. I know that's not your real name, but um, uh, I think I know what type of phone you use. So. Uh, hi. Hi, I'm Deepak Mani. Hi, Deepak. Uh, greetings to you, Ajahn. And my question is uh, based on your talk previously I heard. Yes. It is what are the prerequisite about the entering first jhana? The uh, entering the first jhana. First jhana, yeah. Uh, the first jhana, it is when the body disappears. So you're sitting there and you cannot feel. Uh, your physical sense, you cannot see, you cannot hear, you cannot smell or taste. Now, the, the last of those which goes to five senses is hearing. And so that's when a person's in a first jhana. It's the sound can get you out of the first jhana if you're not that deep in the first jhana. But a lot of time, and maybe your wife calls you and you just literally you don't hear that. You're just deep in meditation. That's one sign. In the party, we call it Vivichewa Karmehi. So totally separated from the five senses. At the same time, that what you're experiencing is a great sense of bliss, ecstasy, which is called the Piti Sukha. And the Piti Sukha, the bliss, which is generated by uh, Vivekaja, 
is Vivekacha Piti Sukha. It's generated by, again, the five senses being shut down for a while. And that is so beautiful, so delightful, so amazing. That that's one of the reasons why you just don't want to go back to the five senses. You're just enjoying this very great stillness of being uh, in great bliss. It is not as stable as the second jhana, because it's like the first jhana is still high bits of holding on, but not enough holding on to destroy the jhana. So you're there, and I usually call it like the wobble, just going into the bliss and then coming out a little bit, going in, out, in, out. Not enough disturbance to arouse the five senses, but still a lot of great bliss. And then, of course, just after a while, that settles down by itself as you go into a second jhana. In the second jhana, there's no wobble left anymore. You're just going deeper into the bliss. And the little clues, other than your own experience, I just, the Buddha was calling that second jhana bliss is samadhija. It's born of stillness. So incredibly still in that second jhana. That's another type of incredible happiness. It far surpasses the bliss of the first jhana. And that's when you really understand that stillness. Go on, yeah. My question was that how do we go into first jhana? Oh, how do you do it? I know sometimes (laughs) that you cannot uh, decide you are going to do it. You have to vanish. In other words, when you sort of disappear, let go of not just things outside, but let go of inside, of doing something, owning something. This is well said by my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who always was repeating, you meditate not to attain things. You, Deepak, cannot attain first jhana. But you disappear, and first jhana happens. So uh, we're meditating to let go of things. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, and now we've got, uh, I hope I say your name correctly. It's, uh, ooh, I've just lost it here. Okay. It's who uh, ye? I can get you to unmute. There we are. If you could just um, click that unmute button. Okay, we might have to move to somebody else because she's not unmuting herself. Okay, perhaps we move to someone else and it's uh, uh, ULAP. UPL, UPL, my apologies. Hi, Ajahn. Good evening. Hi. Uh, Good evening. We met actually in Sri Lanka when you were in 
uh, Sri Lanka in 2017 for uh, Buddhist uh, summit. Oh, that one, yes. Yeah. yeah we were behind <laughs> you good. always for four, five days. Ajahn, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, my question is, uh, actually, I, w- uh, I was suffering from headache uh, for now years, for f- uh, more than five, six years. Mm-hmm. And always when I close my eyes uh, to start meditation, uh, I can feel that blood circulation is happening and Uh, some feeling like tickling and tingling is happening inside my brain and uh, then I can't concentrate and I uh, let go the meditation and uh, after I get some advices from uh, Ajahn Sujato even and from some other uh, monks uh, but I, uh, I started working meditation but still uh, when I do work in meditation and at some time when my mind start uh, peaceful uh, again that feeling is happening uh, ajan is that because of my perception or uh, how how to overcome that situation or oh, that, that is my first question and okay. uh, i let's have... do that question first yes yes yeah okay it's uh, one of the things you know the was of course of this is remember meditation is not about concentration it's about learning how to be here and be aware and be kind yeah. to whatever you experience it's what i used to call kindfulness so when you get to a reasonably calm peaceful state and you feel that tingling over in you know your brain or in the side of your head please don't try to get rid of it We don't try and cure things, we care for things. In other words, just focus in on it, zoom in on it, and just really care for it. You say, well, what is actually caring? You will find a little bit of trial and error, just know how, what is caring for it, leaving it alone, just allowing it to be, just like a mother loves her only child. It doesn't matter if the child is screaming and, and wetting the bed and just having to keep changing nappies. The mother always loves that child, even though it's a lot of hard work. You love that feeling. Be kind to it, care for it. And after a while, you'll change that feeling because your emotional response to it changes. And the perception of that feeling will change. And so often that feeling just vanishes. It goes. You don't try and get rid of it because you're trying to, to cure it. You're caring for it, you're learning for it. For some reason or another, that feeling is there, and it's teaching you a lesson. And if you just try and escape from class, you'll always have to go back again and get into trouble as well. So it's a little teacher for you. So be with your teacher. Give it kindness, give it respect. Just be with it. So we're not trying to, to get somewhere where we're not at this moment. Where you are now is where you are, and you learn from this moment. Care for it. And then you finally get into some incredible deep meditations. If I try to get into deep meditation, no way. I just stay where I am. Okay, peace. Outside things disappear. You go deeper and deeper inside. Do you understand that? 
Okay, good. Thank you, Wedge. Okay, he had a second question. Is that okay, or maybe we've got too many on the list? Okay, well, he's um, he's actually just dropped off, so we'll okay, go on to yeah. the next person. Huyi, uh, she is having a problem with the microphone, so she's coming back in, and hopefully she can uh, we'll pull okay, her back great. into the queue. Great. Uh, Lillian, could you, could I invite you to unmute your microphone now? Hello, Ajahn Brom. Hello, I'm, I'm Lillian from Malaysia. Okay, okay. Also, Salamat Malang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a question about uh, I have a friend that I'm very close with and although she's very smart but uh, the problem is when I told her I want to pursue my degree right after my a diploma right after I graduate from diploma she actually made fun of me by saying uh, why do you why do you want to continue degree like it's such a waste of time such a waste of effort it's such a waste of money you can just uh, get married to a rich man <laughs> right <laughs> after the diploma. <laughs> and I think it's all like um, useless because uh, so my question is, I wonder if I, I should I continue my real, uh, my friendship with her because um, to, to me, I think like she's very negative. She has a lot of negative pers uh, perspective in life. She's very negative about life. Uh, she always complain about certain tiny details so it's quite annoying yeah <laughs> it's annoying but she's a good friend and a lot of times i mean you're obviously a very positive woman and obviously you should do that degree no trouble at all it does really help and uh, sometimes uh, people get amazing experiences from degrees i finished my degree and uh, i'm very happy that i did it in the long term and it, at least it, t it trained me in just uh, self-discipline and just learning just how to get things done, see it from the beginning to the end and not give up halfway. Um, I just from, uh, sorry to interrupt yeah. a bit. I just uh, want to say that, uh, well, my friend, she wanted to get married is to like end her suffering. So I, I also like introduced uh, going to Buddhist temple with her, like meditating yeah. or listening to Dharma talks, but it looks like she is not interested in any of those. Yeah, so she just want to get married just to end her suffering. Yeah. But <laughs> she'd be very lucky if that happens. She gets married and finds a very good man to marry and someone who's kind to her. She still has suffering, but it may be less. At the very least, you know, she will find out what marriage really is. And uh, the idea, the fantasy of marriage, but the reality of it. And as for you, the reason I said that, please, if you can, keep being her friend, because you're very wise and very kind. And there's a wise, kind woman, to actually to be kind to her. It's a wonderful gift for your friend. If it really, really, really wears you out and you get very negative because of being around negative people, then that's not such a good thing. Even though she doesn't go with you to the Buddhist temple, you can go to the Buddhist temple by yourself. And then after a while she sees she'll get really happy over there. And you know, actually many, many girls in Malaysia, they meet their partners in Buddhist temples. <laughs> the reason I said is because you know, the boys and girls who go to Buddhist temples are much wiser, kinder, 
that is high, honestly, they're a higher quality of man. If you're in the Buddhist temple, <laughs> they're the creme de la creme. <laughs> so it's your choice, but if you really have enough energy, then just keep being her friend. Thank you, Ajahn Bro. Okay. Have a nice yeah. day. I will do. Hear <laughs> ye? Welcome back. Yes, can you hear me? Hello. Hello, you can, yes. <laughs> Hi. So, Hi. Which I'm one from of Tokyo. You, what? Which one of you is who ye? The one on the top or the one underneath your chin? I don't oh, this one is Yui. This one is Mook. Mook, okay. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Hi. Hi so I have a question about the perception of a piece. So I have been talking Dhamma with my friend and she said she had a really hard time uh, when she was a kid and have a hard time imagining the peace. So she had a hard time pursue mm -hmm. and then her meditation is another restless time. Is it possible to pursue peace when she has a hard time imagining it? Uh, yes. No, sorry, no. Sorry, because you, you shouldn't sort of imagine peace so much. Hmm. You should be in this present moment. Hmm. And just be real, be here. And you find the longer you're actually here, just this moment, and you accept this moment, you embrace this moment, this moment is like your home for a while, you find it becomes a beautiful place by itself. You don't go searching for peace. People already mm -hmm. have peace. But they go searching for something else. So, so um, when when people say imagine Buddha, like during meditation, I have a meditation like that. Uh, but if you can't do it, you just have to be the present moment, and that's yes. good. Okay, that's excellent. That's the best. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, next, I invite Angie to unmute herself and ask you a question. Uh, hello, Ajahn Bram. Um, hello, thank Angie. you for the talk. Hello, Angie. Yeah, this is Angie from uh, Singapore. So um, I've always had the question that's always been in my mind, that is, um, how exactly is perception? You know, we say in Buddhism, right? We want to know reality as it is. So. Yes. It's yes. always been in my mind. What is reality as it is? Because right now, the reality I see is filtered through my own perception. And as you have talked about today, and, and we all know like through optical illusions, um, actually our mind, our brain actually constructs the vision we see. So, yes. um, you know, yes. it, it fills in the missing dots as, as you have like very uh, aptly illustrated at the start of your talk with the paper. So, um, so I've always wondered how exactly is reality as it is and what is, what is reality perceived by someone without, like who sees it as it is? Yes, that is where, that is where uh, you uh, want to think. And you're not uh, hiding things away. And so it's actually here. And what's actually here in this moment, especially when you've got your eyes closed, you're in a quiet place, 
when all those disturbances of sight and sound and smell and taste and physical feelings disappear. It's the reality behind, behind the five sense world, the reality of your mind. And that is so powerful. And straight away would mean that a person who understands that much would understand you know, the truth of things like rebirth or reincarnation. And you can even access your past lives. Ask yourself, what's my earliest memory? And find out who Angie was before. It's fascinating. But also, and it's more truthful, it adds just more layers of reality you know, to your life situation. And then later on, you can even go even deeper. And just to see exactly you know, who is this person who is looking at me now? And who is this person who decides what you're going to do? Is it a person at all? And so in the end, the reality is a wonderful experience with Ajahn Child. Say this one again. So many people have heard it before. When I had a really, really deep meditation and I was, went to go and see my teacher and he looked at me straight away and saw that you know, my mind was really clear and powerful. And he, he just looked at me and said, Brahma Wangsa, why? He asked me the question, why? And I was still too stupid, so I said, I don't know. And he laughed. But then afterwards he told me the answer. He said, if anyone asks about you again, the answer to the question, why? Reality. This is no truth. Dhamma. So the answer is, there is nothing. So that's reality. And then he asked me, do you understand? I said, yes. He said, no, you don't. <laughs> do you understand? <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why if you tell people what reality is, they don't understand. They make a religion of it. They fight wars over it. So the reality is something that only you can understand. And you understand it when you're really, really peaceful and very powerful and very deep. And we make ourselves like that through our practice of the Eightfold Path. Do you understand? No, you don't. <laughs> But you will. <laughs> okay, Angie. Okay, Angie. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn. Okay. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, next, I invite uh, uh, Tisa to unmute yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn, for the great talk. Uh, my question is somewhat uh, related to what Angie asked. On one hand, uh, you taught us that perception is uh, far away from reality, if I got it right, uh, having listened to your talk. On the other hand, uh, when we deal with fellow human beings at work, uh, whether it is in a hospital or university, perception seems to be everything. So how do you uh, address this friction as a, as a practicing Buddhist? Uh, what is your tip? What my tip is that if you're a some Buddhist thoughts at uh, university, at uh, med school, that that is important much more to medicine than that. And quite a few people, I've encouraged them, they, they're treating a patient, and they're treating them so much, but nothing is working. And sometimes see if you can innovate. 
In other words, you go beyond your perceptions or your trained perceptions, the stuff you've learned at med school and other doctors have told you, and you feel what needs to be done. And then sometimes you try that, and it's incredibly spectacularly successful. So we deal with perceptions, but sometimes you can see how many of those perceptions are built on fear. Fear of not doing the wrong thing. Fear of, you know, your patient not dying. Fear of, you know, the, your fellows in the, in the hospital not criticizing you. And that sometimes stops you from doing some wonderful things for your patients and healing. So, so in, in other words, you doctors, go with the flow at that moment. You go with the flow at that moment. You go with your intuition. Because there's more to than your knowledge. And sometimes that intuition, you, not always, obviously, but there's sometimes you feel that, let's try this. And you know it works. You've probably had experiences like that already. I, I, I do. Thank you. And then you become a great doctor, not just a, not just a skilled doctor. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, cool. Next, I invite Michael to unmute yourself. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, can indeed, loud and clear. Yes, oh, lovely. <laughs> it's very nice to see you. I, I used to live in Perth, and I used to come and see you 20 years ago. Um, I live in Brighton, UK now, so I'm happy to see you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I... I so I followed your teachings for many years. Uh, consider you my teacher. Nevertheless, I I don't know the best way to put this, but I think I <laughs> I need to say that I have a criticism. Go okay, go on. I don't feel that I don't feel that your teachings and Buddhist teachings, the, the wider Buddhist Buddhist teachings, um, seem to have kept step with. Um, with what's now understood about um, personality types. And although um, mm -hmm. the teachings on compassion and so on are very, very mm -hmm. useful and, and very powerful, and I've benefited, you know, obviously I've benefited a lot from them, many people have, I, I've noticed in my own life and also um, observed in others that it can make you very vulnerable to some personality types, which are now understood um, psychopathic personality types, narcissistic mm -hmm personality mm. disorder personality types I, I, th I really think that it would be very helpful if the Buddhist world um, would engage more with what's now understood about those personality types um, because in in short um, they simply uh, there are individuals on, on on earth who who sadly who, who just don't possess empathy and they tend to prey on people that that are, are, are trying to live a very empathic life, you know, such as Buddhists. And I think that if this was better understood, then um, perhaps um, people people could be protected from, from this sort of abuse. I, I, don't, I haven't explained yeah. it too well, but, you no, know, that's I understand it, because yeah. I've heard that problem before. Yeah. And it's true yeah. that, you know, it doesn't matter as what, Buddhist teacher you follow, that you no, know, we've only got our strengths, we've got our weaknesses. 
And just go that when you go to a university, you don't just have one physics teacher, you have many physics teachers. And some of those teachers are strong in one area and weak in other areas. So there's sometimes that people like follow a teacher, they should follow teachings and many teachers. Like for in Buddhism, we go to refuge, the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha. We don't go to refuge of Buddha, Dhamma and Ajahn Brahma, or Buddha, Dhamma and Ajahn Chah, or the Buddha, Dhamma and uh, the Dalai Lama. It's Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha, and the Dhamma is special. But please widen the teachings. I know this. There's many things which I teach which you know, are not full enough. So that's, that's going to be part of the course. So please, any other teachers out there, just please fill in those gaps. And it doesn't mean that we reject you know, part of some, all of some teachings. We know that no teacher can fully... Um, convey the teachings which are needed in our world. And, you know, one of my points is, one of my maybe weaknesses is that I've never really met a psychopath. And even perhaps one of the most violent people I've ever met was Ronnie Cray in Broadmoor prison some years ago. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And... <laughs> And but you know he was, I had and said, "Oh, if I ever get a couple of quid, I'll send it to your monastery." He never did, of course. But there's something which I feel of a human being: they've got a brain. The brain may be psychopathic, the brain may be narcissistic, it may be just hardwired for that because of so much conditioning. But there's something mm. called a mind, and that mind, you know, is much bigger than that brain. And there's been in many times I've been in jail, you know, teaching, and many times when you're teaching in jail that you see the people, you, you don't ask what they've done. If you did, you'd run a mile because, you know, you're, they've got nothing to lose and you're as vulnerable as they are, uh, more vulnerable, sorry. But then again, sometimes you look at their kindness, their goodness. I know that they're not looking at that. You don't see the psychopathy. You see something else. But I found that has been just so inspiring. Even people have been rejected from the world. I won't reject them. I've never been hurt by it. Maybe I've just been lucky. But that's, you know, because you're a monk, because, you know, you've got strong meditation. You can see deeper. But look, this was in one of the top security jails over here in Perth. I got this wonderful compliment it's a sort of compliment which is so rare and so wonderful that i keep remembering i don't mind sharing these things with other people i'm not trying to be proud but this was when a prison officer called me up and said can you come back to our jail to teach i said i'm just too busy these days i'll send someone else and that's when the prison officer said no we want you we want ajahn brahm I said, why and he said, praise. he said, all the years I've been being a prison officer in Australia, I've noticed something unique. All the, the prisoners who come to your class, when they get released, they never come back again. Ever. I don't know what you're doing, but please come back and do it again. 
that really meant a lot to me because he was a career prison officer. He's about to retire. He just wanted to do this to get me to go back. He saw something was happening. And I thought, what the heck have I been doing? I think that's probably the reason why, because I never saw a psychopath. So a human being who had psychopathic tendencies that are much bigger than that psychopathy. They were practicing narcissism. There was another part of them, maybe deep down inside, which wasn't narcissistic. And that's what I was looking at. And when I could see it, they could see it as well. There was this guy in a local jail. He was a murderer. And he's in there for a double murder. But then he went and he read my book on the two bad bricks in the wall. There's only two murders. <laughs> only two bad bricks. <laughs> my wall is much bigger. <laughs> and there was something really truthful in that. You could see the other part of him. And I, 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 I really, the other part Yeah, go on, yeah, go on. Well, I, I really wish that what you were saying was true, but I'm just a bit concerned that the research doesn't bear it out, that unfortunately, although we like to think that deep within, you know, even a psychopath, there is compassion. I think the, you know, if you sort of really go into the research, it, it suggests that that's, that's not the case, which is not, not, an, not something that's, you know, want to accept, but it just yeah. seems to be the yeah. case. And if it and if it's understood, then you're, then um, you know, I st still think you can be compassionate to these individuals, but you're but yeah. you're able to sort of not get a, not get into trouble with them as well. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. But even research, I've done enough science research myself, and sometimes you see what you're looking for even there. So. Uh, mm -hmm. It's hard to know, but anyway, nevertheless, it's it's good to protect people. I really agree with you there. That's why that if there is any um, system protect prisons and stuff or Broadmoor, it should be more like quarantining people, not punishing them. If they are psychopaths, they've got no choice in the matter. Mm. And they act the way they do. And how can you punish people for that? So that's why anybody who has, say, COVID-19 or something, you've got to put them into quarantine so that uh, mm. it is um, protecting other people. Not as a yes, punishment. And, and, and just finally, of course, most of yeah. these individuals are not in prison. They're sort of amongst us. Yeah, yeah. And all, all, all I'm really just saying, if I may, just very quickly, is that I think that the teaching's excellent, but... Yeah. Um, if if you're dealing with one of these individuals, you need to be very careful, not not um, especially compassionate people that are trying to do these teachings. I think there's yeah. many cases now where we understand that they can really be preyed on by these people with, with rather different personality yeah. types. Yeah. It's just just a good thing to sort of be aware of. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay. I agree with you. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks. <laughs> Good to see you. Look after yourself. <laughs> Protect Thank yourself. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn. Ajahn, we've got, um, we're coming close to the end time. There's three more questions, three more people in the queue for questions. Are you happy to continue on? Yes, I'm happy to continue on, yes. Okay. Okay, so can, may I ask Leo to unmute yourself? Hi, Ajahn, it's Leo again. Um, 
Okay. Question. Um, so, like, I asked yesterday as well. Uh, there's the um, pro- um, past life progression um, important for meditation? Can it benefits? To a bigger picture, and it also means that it makes it easier for you to let go of stuff. And I, just an anecdote, I remember it's only in a newspaper article I saw in Thailand years ago, there was a beautiful young Thai girl, and she said she's not going to get married. She had many proposals because she could record her past life. She know what marriage is. She's been there, done that. So that was much easier for her to live a more monastic life. She didn't become a nun, but she was just staying in the monastery most of the time, living a very simple life. And so it, I can see there that it really helped her. There was another gentleman, he used to be our president of our Buddhist society in West Australia before, and he, let me get a past regression, which turned out to be true. Uh, one of the things which he did, he was Aussie, he was a, you know, go to the pub and have a beer every now and again. As soon as he realized the truth of uh, past life regressions, that uh, and he remembered his past life, he gave up drinking and kept the five precepts. So that's pretty powerful. He realized, well, what am I doing this for? You know, just drinking and just messing up this life. So it does have some great benefits, benefits you never expect. Great. Thank you, Damien. Thank you, Leo. Next is uh, Damien. Can you please unmute your microphone? Damien. Damien, could you unmute your microphone? Hi, can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, briefly, before you spoke on uh, the first jhana, and at the at the end of that reply, you said meditation is you letting go of things. Can you define oh, yeah. when you say you and then also define what it is that you're letting go of? Okay is we always tend to aspire for things, want things, and our experiences and whatever useful things we've gained in this world, we've worked hard for. And many people try hard to get things like jhanas, and they get very, very frustrated. Even people who try to meditate just on something like the breath, they find they can't do it. But then sooner or later, someone comes along, they don't do these things. These things happen when you're not doing stuff. And this is like an automatic process of the mind. You close your eyes and you, know, you start lessening your control. So, you know, you just sit perfectly still. You relax and control the body. The body just likes sitting still. If you try and hold a body still, you soon get tired. You let the body be still. And the same when you are, say, focusing on the breath. You try to hold the mind on the breath, it doesn't work. When I regard my breath as a good friend, someone I love to to hang out with, and I do that because I've known my breath for such a long time, had some great experiences with my breath. And when this talk stops and I go back into my cave, 
as well, just washing my breath. And it's like, here we are again. Hi, how you been? What you been doing? Oh, I've been just giving a talk for the BS fee. And so we hang out together. So there's no force there at all. No control. And I don't aspire, what can I do next? Or oh, let's go into a jhana. That never works. Instead, I just keep letting go, being kind, being gentle. And the breath becomes so peaceful and so beautiful. And then the beauty, the pity sukha of the breath gets so strong. I mean, I don't decide, oh, now I'm going to get into jhana now. We just let these things happen. Because every time I want to do something, I disturb it. Every time I just sit there and do nothing, and that is like disappearing. You let go of your will. You don't control anything. And then get, things get so peaceful, so deep and so blissful. And when you come out afterwards, you know, you know that was just so much energy, so much mindfulness, and that was, that was a jhana. But if you try and do it, you can't. And it's, this is one of our, my, the problems of being a monk. It's one of our rules. It's the eighth Pajitya rule, if you want to check it up. And it is that a monk is not allowed to actually let people know whether they get a jhana or not a jhana. They can't tell what stage of enlightenment they are in. And this is one of the rules which we have. And over many, many years, then you think, how can I make those answers? So inspire people but not break my, my rules. And so that was one of the wonderful ways of answering and also teaching at the same time when people would ask me, Ajahn Brahm, come on, be honest with us. Ajahn Brahm, can you enter jhana? <laughs> and they know I'm a bit playful. And so I say, no, I cannot enter jhana. Ajahn Brahm cannot enter jhana. And then the look Waiting for the next video because I know this is not, no, no uh, you can't take that on face value. And I say, Ajahn Brahm has to disappear first of all. I have to vanish. So, you know, the Ajahn Brahm, which is talking to you now, the one which decides what to say and how to say it, all that doing Ajahn Brahm has to vanish. And when I vanish, disappear, let go, then these jhanas happen. Well, hopefully you can understand that because it's also a wonderful teaching. Too many people, they know these, the, the importance of jhanas. They're powerful, wonderful states. They read about it in the suttas. There are other people talking about these things. How can you experience them? You have to let go of this wanting. Is trying. It all comes from this idea of me, self, the Ajahn Brahma, uh, the person, Rio, or whoever it is. This is actually where it comes from. And this has to be abandoned. And then there's no, there's no barrier now between the jhanas and your experience. That's how it works. You have to disappear, let go, first of all, and fully let go. If there's still something you're holding on to, those jhanas don't happen. So it's not that you do the jhanas, it's that they happen and then you refer back to the text that explains what's happening. Yeah, you just when you come out of the most amazing experience of your life, wow. And then you find out where they come from and how, they, how they're experienced. You disappear.
it's, it's, it's part of the teaching of anatta. Not self, not me, not mine, not a self. It's not what you do. What happens when you stop doing? And look, quite frankly, this is <laughs> so many of the students, they try really hard, meditate and meditate, almost wear holes on the meditation cushions and meditate so much. And there's one example, this one woman that she was meditating on this retreat. She'd been meditating for years, really diligent, very smart. And then at the end of the retreat, getting nowhere. But then from the retreat center to the airport, she had to go by taxi. The taxi wasn't supposed to arrive for another hour. So she decided just to sit in the meditation hall, just you know, literally killing time, not doing anything. You know, meditating for so long and getting nowhere, she gave up hope. And that was brilliant. She gave up expectations and hope. She didn't do anything. She sat, relaxed to the max, did nothing. When she came out afterwards, I'll never forget her face looking up at me. Oh, I don't oh, oh. She got her first deep meditation. Totally unexpected. She never did it. She disappeared and let it happen. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ajahn. Okay, Sid, you've got the last question for the night. Thank you. Thanks to all the uh, administrators, the you know those who are facilitating this interaction. I'm really grateful, and of course to Ajan. Ajan, a lovely meeting you after two years in person. Uh, <laughs> um, Ajan, a couple of questions. I mean, actually, one question. Um, I mean, uh, the first one is, of course, you know, uh, who is the I who is doing all this? For example, when during meditation, the mind does something, and then there's a reaction. So do I count both of them as doing minds or do I, I mean, I, I'm a little clueless. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them are doing stuff. It's <laughs> best, <laughs> best to and, shut up. And just after a while, just you get more and more calm. And the time when you just, you're just sitting there doing absolutely, just really aware, very pissed out, gets more and more and more. Uh, and, uh, I had a really bad boss and that helped me kind of uh, look at my uh, expectations as mine and not me. And that really helped. Over years, mm -hmm. I could really shift, you know, put in that clarity of distance between myself and expectations and whatever else. Okay. If I were to put an example to it, it's like watching a raging bull in a, in a training ring. You know, I'm yeah. watching it from outside. Ah, okay. uh, and I have an option of you know, sitting on the bull as well. Uh, the problem is if I'm observing the bull, yeah. uh, right? Rather the, you know, I don't yeah. have energy, right? Yeah. Even to kind of continue with my day's work, no motivation. I mean, I like, what's the big deal with everything, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas if I actually sit on the raging bull, then I'm actually, uh, you know, uh, bringing to life all kinds of past luggages, random stuff, aspirations, etc. So I'm, I'm kind of a little stuck there. Well, I, no, I try. There's no. When do we ask You've been sitting on the ball and being thrown off and just getting bruised, you know, for years and years and years. It's much better just to walk out of the arena and just go somewhere else. But anyway, it depends. If that's your job and you've got a, a family to feed, then that's a bit tough. So you do the best you can. But remember, you don't work 24-7. Um, uh, you don't work so every hour of the week. So you have your work and then you go home. 
And that home which you go to, hopefully physically, it's the most calm place. You've also got the other home, what Ajahn Chah used to call the real home. That's when you close your eyes and go inside. And that's real home. That is you know, a place where you can find real peace. Either in the world, you can't find that real peace. There's too much stuff going on. That's why, you know, to me, I've got a big monastery to look after, Buddhist societies all over the place, lots of things I should be doing. But then I'm a little bit irresponsible in a wise way. In other words, I go into my cave and I'm not, I'm not really concerned what's going on outside. I go inside my heart, my mind, and I let go of that world. And I spend some time in my real home where I can feed on bliss and dhamma and stuff. So when I go out, I'm really ready. Give me any ball and I'll kick his, kick his ass. <laughs> in other words, you get that inner strength. You know, and that's what you can do when you have a real home, a place where you can go inside. The good news, Sajan, is uh, the bad boss went away rather. I changed my job and uh, that helped me write a book uh, after taking permission from you. In fact, I mentioned you on the book. don't know how to get one across to you as uh, gratitude. Um, as I start thinking about, uh, you know, hey, who is this me? I think the only answer I found that helps me actually get a handle on the location is to kind of understand that the eye is pretty much awareness. I mean, nothing else fits there, right? It's not, the will is not me. The, you know, my moods are not me. My knowledge is not me. It's, it's probably just awareness is uh, where I found some uh, you know, piece there. That's good enough for now. But you say for the time being, we'll see what happens afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, Ajahn. Okay, Thanks. great. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ajahn, for the wonderful talk and your patience with uh, answering so many of those questions. Um, I will now pass back to Vali to, the, to give the closing address. Thank you, Sri Jyot. Well, thank you very so good. much for your inspiring talk tonight, Ajahn, and also for giving talks since last since last Saturday. So um, the BSV also wishes to thank the BSV committee, the event organizers, AV team, especially Street and Langdon, and all the volunteers who have worked hard to prepare the in-person event, which is not happening, and also all the virtual events. Thank you so much um, to everyone for joining this event as well. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. So I could be there personally, but I'll come soon. Thank you. Good night, everyone.